everyone, and welcome to the July 18th edition of WarCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fulce, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the exclusive remedy protects an employer who owned the chair that caused an industrial injury. Here's what happened in the case of Friend versus Kang. Paul Friend, a tow truck driver, was injured at work when he sat on a metal folding chair that collapsed. He alleged his injury was caused by the negligence of William Kang and the employer. Friend conceded in his complaint that Kang was the owner of the corporation with the DBA of State Line Services Incorporated, which was employer. He claims the chair collapsed because it had been negligently repaired at Kang's request. In short, Friend alleged his workplace injury was caused by his employer's negligence. He further alleged that Kang had acquired the chair in his personal name for his and the use of other co-workers during the course and scope of their employment. Sometime before Friend sat in the chair, Kang had the chair repaired, and he alleged that Kang should have known the chair was not properly repaired and was not safe for the use in the workplace. Kang disputed Friend's allegation that he personally owned the chair, and the defendants moved for summary judgment on Friend's negligence claim, arguing that workers' compensation was Friend's exclusive remedy for his injury. Friend opposed the defendants' motion, arguing that State Line Services was his employer and that Kang personally owned the chair because he acquired it from the previous owner in his own name as an individual. The trial court granted summary judgment and dismissed the claim, and the Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case of Friend v. Kang. The Court of Appeal concluded that Friend's claim is barred by the exclusive remedy of the Workers' Compensation Act, and therefore, the trial court properly granted summary judgment. The Workers' Compensation Act applies to any workplace injury caused by an employer's negligence. And so, by Friend's own allegations, the act applies to this injury. It does not matter whether Kang personally owns the chair or the chair is a company asset. The material facts are that Kang provided the chair at his workplace and the chair allegedly injured one of his employees. An employer's sole liability for a workplace injury is for benefits payable, regardless of fault, under the workers' compensation law. An appeals court has delivered another blow to the Obamacare law. The workers' compensation industry had mixed reactions to the passage of this law a few years ago. Some believed it would be favorable to the industry by providing coverage for minor medical issues that might have ended up a workers' compensation claim had there been no other alternative. However, no matter what might have been the effect, As time goes by, Obamacare continues to suffer setbacks, and the cumulative effect threatens its very survival. The Court of Appeal for the D.C. Circuit issued its decision in the case of Central United Life Insurance Company v. Burwell. It struck down an HHS rule prohibiting insurance companies from selling fixed indemnity plans. Although the case focuses on a small set of insurance policies, this decision could have broader implications on the individual market and further threaten the sustainability of risk pools. 
Fixed indemnity policies are insurance products that pay out a fixed amount for each medical event, regardless of the actual cost of the service. These policies are considered accepted benefits under the HHS regulations. But Obamacare specifically excluded accepted benefits from minimal essential coverage. So in 2014, HHS promulgated regulations which sought to make it more difficult for consumers to obtain these types of policies by adding new criteria. As the court noted, this would have effectively eliminated stand-alone fixed indemnity plans altogether. The court determined that HHS overstepped its authority, pointing out that HHS was attempting to amend the underlying law by itself and Congress did not provide any leeway for HHS to tack on the additional criteria. Fixed indemnity policies appeal to the young and healthy, the exact population that is necessary to maintain sustainable risk pools and to keep premiums manageable. HHS sought to foreclose this option of offering fixed indemnity plans unless consumers otherwise had minimum essential coverage. With rising premiums in the individual market, having the option of fixed indemnity plans may tempt the young and healthy to select this type of coverage and incur tax penalty rather than entering the individual market. The administration's approach to this issue was intentional. If this population started using indemnity plans with greater frequency, it could create additional challenges to the ACA marketplaces. Though the court ruled against the administration, Congress will likely consider legislative remedies if increased usage of indemnity plans causes deterioration of the ACA marketplace. And now our crime report. Midnight Rider is an uncompleted American biographical drama film. Director Randall Miller co-wrote the screenplay with Jody Savin based on the autobiography My Cross to Bear by singer Greg Allman. Miller and Savin were the producers. The film was to star William Hurt, Tyson Ritter, Joey Deutsch, Eliza Dushku, and Wyatt Russell. In February 2014, the first day of filming, the crew was on an active railroad trestle bridge high over a river in Georgia. And second camera assistant Sarah Jones was killed when she was struck by a freight train that arrived on the trestle. Seven other crew members were also hurt, one seriously. Production was suspended the following week and multiple investigations into the incident were undertaken. Miller, Savin, executive producer Jay Sedrich, and first assistant director Hillary Schwartz were charged with involuntary manslaughter and criminal trespass, as well as being cited by OSHA for serious and willful safety violations. Miller and Sedrich entered guilty pleas to felony involuntary manslaughter and criminal trespassing. Miller received a sentence of 10 years, of which he was expected to serve two years in jail, followed by probation. In March 2015, Schwartz pleaded guilty to felony involuntary manslaughter and criminal trespass and was also sentenced to 10 years probation. But then Hillary Schwartz also filed a workers' compensation claim in California 
and alleged a psychiatric injury as a result of this incident. Last December, a finding and award found that she did sustain an industrial injury to her psyche. Though WCJ ruled against the defendant's affirmative defense under the Labor Code, which precludes awarding benefits where injuries were caused by the commission of a felony. Schwartz was awarded temporary disability and further medical treatment, and all other issues were deferred. The defendant's petition for reconsideration was denied in the split panel decision of Schwartz versus Ease Entertainment. A petition for re review was filed in April with the Court of Appeal, though the court has not yet acted on the petition. Evidence at the WCAB trial showed that Schwartz accepted a plea agreement under the Georgia First Offender Act. The act provided that she would be found guilty of the charges on probation for 10 years, and upon the successful completion of her probation, there would be no entry of judgment and no adjudication of guilt. Pursuant to this agreement, a bench trial in the criminal case was held in the Superior Court in Georgia. The criminal trial judge found her guilty after receiving testimony in court. But after review of the criminal proceedings, the work comp judge concluded that under a strict interpretation of the labor code, a conviction is required to bar a claim for workers' comp benefits. Thus, the work comp judge concluded that the requirement that the applicant's injury be caused by the commission of a felony for which she was convicted has not been met. The WCAB agreed with this reasoning and denied reconsideration. Essentially, both reasoned that technically there was no judgment of a felony as required by the Labor Code should she successfully complete the terms of her probation under the first offender law. But Commissioner Razzo dissented. He reasoned that as a consequence of applicant's conduct, she was determined by a Superior Court judge to have committed acts which constitute a felony. The fact that applicant was subsequently accorded leniency in her sentencing does not obviate the fact that she was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. He would therefore grant defendant's petition for reconsideration and find that applicant's claim was barred. A Buena Park doctor's license has been revoked three years after his fraud conviction. Back in 2013, a jury convicted 62-year-old Dr. Augustus Omeng of six counts of health care fraud for nearly $3 million in fraudulent claims after a five-day trial. He was among 10 defendants charged with operating the Medicare fraud ring. All 10, including two doctors and a nurse, have been convicted either by a jury or through guilty pleas. The ring involved Pacific Clinic in Long Beach, where Omeng was medical director, as well as Ivy Medical Supply in Anaheim and Santos Medical Supply in South Los Angeles. As medical director, Omeng and others recruited patients and billed Medicare for unnecessary tests and procedures. He generated fraudulent prescriptions for medical equipment, power wheelchairs, and nutritional supplies. These prescriptions were then sold to medical supply companies that billed Medicare for millions of dollars of unnecessary and undelivered medical supplies. He was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. That is about the amount of time it took 
the California Medical Board to revoke his license. In February 2014, an automatic suspension order was issued from the Board of Medicine. Then, his certificate expired in April of that same year and was in delinquent status while he was in prison. Also, in April 2014, officials filed an accusation seeking to revoke his license based upon his felony conviction. And Omeng filed his notice of defense and request for a hearing in September 2014. He asked that any hearing not be conducted until at least nine months after his release from the halfway house custody of the Bureau of Prisons. Despite his request, a hearing was convened in Sacramento last February. Dr. Omeng, representing himself by telephone from Federal Prison South Camp in Lompoc, argued that his health care fraud conviction is not substantially related to the qualifications, functions, and duties of a physician. He also stated that he apologized to the courts and accepted full responsibility for his actions. He went on to explain that he was brought up in a Christian home in Ghana, West Africa, where his father was a respected, ordained Presbyterian minister. He said that he was taught to help those in need, especially underprivileged ones, and not to cheat or take advantage of these people. But the judge said that based on a review of the record as a whole and a review of the manual of model disciplinary orders and disciplinary guidelines, revocation is the appropriate remedy. 27-year-old Shirin Havonasian, who is licensed North Hollywood insurance agent, was arrested on multiple felony counts of burglary, grand theft, and unauthorized use of access cards. Authorities claim he embezzled over $100,000 from his employer and clients for his personal use. The California Department of Insurance launched an investigation after receiving information from his employer claiming that he offered fictitious discounts to policyholders if they paid him in cash for their automobile insurance. Rather than remitting the cash payments to his employer, he allegedly deposited the money into his mother's bank account for his personal use. A search warrant of his residence also uncovered a notebook containing the names, social security numbers, and credit card numbers of dozens of other potential victims. Department investigators are working to identify and contact those victims. Investigators found evidence that he used the credit cards of some clients without their permission to pay the automobile insurance premiums of those who paid him with cash. One victim's credit card was charged 145 times to pay a total of about $45,000 in insurance premiums for 80 other policyholders. He was booked into the Los Angeles County Jail and is being prosecuted by the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. He faces up to six years in prison if convicted. The department has taken administrative action to suspend his insurance license. The Los Angeles Times reported its stunning investigation of the Los Angeles Oxycontin rings that distributed millions of dollars in opiates, all with the knowledge and apparent silent approval of drug makers such as Purdue Pharma. In 2008, a convicted felon and his business partner leased office space on a CD block near MacArthur Park. They set up a waiting room 
and hired an elderly physician named Eleanor Santiago and gave the place a name that sounded like an ordinary clinic, like Lake Medical. The doctor began prescribing the opioid painkiller OxyContin in extraordinary quantities. In a single week in 2008, Santiago issued orders for 1,500 pills, more than entire pharmacies sold in a month. A month later, it was 11,000 pills, and by two months later, she had prescribed more than 73,000 pills with a street value of nearly $6 million. To keep the OxyContin flowing, Lake Medical needed people whose time was cheap. For that, there was no place better than Skid Row. For as little as $25, homeless people served as straw patients and collected prescriptions for 80s. 80s are 80 milligram pills with the strength of 16 Vicodin tablets and very popular on the streets. It required just a few hours at the clinic. Then they were driven, often in groups, to a pharmacy where a capper acting as the chaperone paid the pharmacy bill in cash. He then took the pills back to the Lake Medical Ring leaders who packaged them in bulk for sale to drug dealers. Any physician writing high volumes of 80s would be a red flag for anyone trying to detect how OxyContin was getting into the black market. The number of prescriptions Santiago was writing wasn't merely high, it was jaw-dropping. Many doctors would go to their entire careers without writing a single 80s prescription. Santiago doled out about 26 of them every day. Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, tracked the surge in her prescriptions. A sales manager went to check out the clinic, and the company launched an investigation. It eventually concluded that Lake Medical was working with a corrupt pharmacy in Huntington Park to obtain large quantities of OxyContin. Yet, Purdue did not shut off the supply of highly addictive OxyContin and did not tell authorities what it knew about Lake Medical until seven years later when the clinic was out of business and its leaders indicted. By that time, 1.1 million pills had spilled into the hands of mobsters, the Crips gang, and other criminals, and the pills from Lake Medical coursed out of Los Angeles. An informant would later tell an FBI agent that East Hollywood's White Fence Gang trafficked these pills to Chicago. Legitimate pharmacists from La, La Cañada, Flint Ridge, Glendale, Moreno Valley, and elsewhere also complained to Purdue. Company executives and lawyers received at least 11 reports about Santiago in the four months after they first suspected her. And for more than a decade, Purdue collected extensive evidence suggesting illegal trafficking of OxyContin and in many cases did not share it with law enforcement or cut off the flow of pills. Purdue had access to a stream of data showing how individual doctors across the nation were prescribing OxyContin. The information came from IMS Health a company that buys prescription data from pharmacies and resells it to drug makers for marketing purposes. That information was vital to Purdue's sales department. Representatives working on commission used it to identify doctors writing a small number of OxyContin prescriptions who might be persuaded to write even more. 
By coming through the data, Purdue also could identify physicians writing large numbers of prescriptions, a potential sign of drug dealing. As a private, family-owned corporation, Purdue has earned more than $31 billion from OxyContin, the nation's best-selling painkiller. A year before Lake Medical opened, Purdue and three of its executives pleaded guilty to federal charges of misbranding OxyContin and what the company acknowledged was an attempt to mislead doctors about the risk of addiction. It was ordered to pay $635 million in fines and fees. When Lake Medical closed in 2010, after a year and a half in business, Purdue had still not shared its wealth of information on the clinic with authorities, according to law enforcement sources. And now in regulatory news, the DWC released its 2016 report on the implementation of the 2012 workers' compensation reforms. The primary goals of the reforms were to increase benefits and improve medical care for injured workers and to control costs for employers. Significant progress towards meeting the goals has been achieved. And the department is pushing ahead to further reduce costs in the system by developing an evidence-based drug formulary and improved anti-fraud efforts. Officials report that savings continue to be realized with the WCIRB estimating that $600 million will be saved over what was initially estimated. In May, the California Department of Insurance approved the advisory pure premium rates that are on average 5% less than the industry average for filed pure premium rates and 10.4% less than the average of the approved advisory pure premium rates as measured in July. Projected average medical costs per claim decreased by about 8% between 2011 and 2015 and benefits for workers also improved. Permanent disability benefits to injured workers increased approximately 30%, and more than $41 million in return to work, work supplemental benefits have been dispersed. A focus on evidence-based medicine has reduced costs and unnecessary treatment and created an efficient IMR process to resolve disputes. Evidence of opioid abuse prompted legislation mandating the adoption of an evidence-based workers' compensation drug formulary by next July. The DWC is engaged in efforts to promulgate regulations for a formulary. Other rulemaking is underway for home health care and interpreter services and to extend the deadline for return-to-work supplement payments. The DIR and the DWC are also working to streamline the utilization review process, improve the medical treatment utilization schedule to ensure it reflects current science and best practices, and exploring options for electronic submission of medical records to increase efficiency. The DIR is also leading an effort to identify and address strategies for improved anti-fraud efforts. The DIR and the Department of Insurance convened working groups to gather stakeholder input of fraudulent activity in the system and will be preparing a report on its policy recommendations to the governor and the legislature by no later than the spring of 2017. 
The WCIRB president and CEO highlighted some of its key initiatives and accomplishments from the past year in an open letter to the community. Through broad customer outreach, the WCIRB is actively collaborating to identify product opportunities and services that expand access to information and deliver new insights into the state of the system and its specific cost drivers. Its cost monitoring report revealed that total SB863 savings are emerging greater than initially projected. Areas showing savings include reforms on liens and spinal implant surgeries, new fee schedules for physicians and ambulatory surgery centers, and reduced utilization of medical services. However, the report also indicated that frictional costs projected to decline are increasing throughout California. The WCIRB has implemented significant enhancements to California's experience rating plan. Effective last year, a limitation was added to restrict the impact of a single claim in the experience period to no more than 25 percentage points. Effective in 2016, the basis of experience rating eligibility was shifted to expected loss rates from pure premium rates in order to accelerate the timing of the WCIRB's issuance of experience modifications to employers. Now, the WCIRB issued 80% of all of last January's experience modifications more than 90 days prior to policy expiration, compared to 25% under the prior year's approach. Effective in 2017, the insurance commissioner's approved variable split point formula will be implemented which will vary the primary and excess loss split point based on an employer's expected losses. Last year, the number of customer touch points with the WCRB exceeded 2 million for the first time in company history. And with new features such as coverage search capability for insurer claims adjusters, it expects more growth in 2016. New outreach efforts include WCIRB Mod Talks, a series of interactive webinars addressing the 2017 experience rating changes. The first Mod Talk garnered its highest customer attendance to date with over 300 online attendees and more than 150 viewing the recorded event. Looking ahead, the WCIRB focused on several strategic multi-year initiatives. It will launch the WCIRB Comp Essentials, its online e-learning system, which will provide licensed agents and brokers with continuing education credit. The Comprehensive Risk Summary Report will allow customers to access historical information and data on both experience-rated and non-experience-rated policyholders. The WCIRB Connect which is the WCIRB's most widely used online service, will soon release a My Favorites customization so that Connect users will be able to quickly access on one page the features they utilize most often. And finally, the WCIRB continues to pursue the integration of external data sources with WCIRB data to enhance peer premium rate making and industry research as well as shape ideas for potential new products and services in the years to come. 
And now, in financial news, a new report from Fitch Ratings claims that after many years of underwriting losses, performance for the workers' compensation line generated a significant profit in 2015. But competition is heating up, and Fitch expects a return to an underwriting loss by 2017. Workers' compensation is the largest individual product segment by premium volume in the commercial lines market and an important business line for a wide number of underwriters. The workers' comp insurance market saw a sharp turnaround in the last few years due to premium rate increases, stable loss trends, and improved loss reserve experience. However, this performance will likely be unsustainable as price competition intensifies due in part to abundant market capacity. The segment underwriting combined ratio dropped from a recent cyclical high of 117% in 2011 to 95% in 2015. Premium revenue growth slowed more recently, but averaged more than 5% for the last three years and was 3.5% in 2015. The recent economic recession, workers' compensation business suffered from weak pricing and significant declines in segment premium volume. And market share shifted significantly in workers' compensation over the last five years. Prior industry leaders, American International Group and Liberty Mutual Insurance Group, reduced premiums in the segment in response to past underwriting losses. While rapid growth was reported by several underwriters, particularly Berkshire Hathaway and Amtrust Financial Services. But officials at Fitch consider rapid growth that is well in excess of the market's growth rate to add considerable risk to an insurer's underwriting profile. And now in medical news, something strange is going on in medicine. Major diseases like colon cancer, dementia, and heart disease are declining in wealthy countries and improved diagnoses and treatment cannot fully explain this. And this news will certainly complicate the process of reserving for a lifetime medical award. Scientists marvel at this good news, a medical mystery of the best sort and one that is often overlooked. Still, many are puzzled. Of course, these diseases are far from gone, but it looks as if people in the United States and some other wealthy countries are unexpectedly starting to beat back the diseases of aging. The leading killers are still the leading killers, cancer, heart disease, stroke, but they are occurring later in life and people in general are living longer in good health. Colon cancer is the latest conundrum. While the overall cancer death rate has been declining since the early 1990s, The plunge in colon cancer deaths is especially perplexing. Researchers at the Gassell School of Medicine at Dartmouth and the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Vermont found that the rate has fallen by nearly 50% since its peak in the 1980s. Screening, they say, is only part of the story. The magnitude of the changes alone suggests that other factors must be involved. None of the studies showing the effect of increased screening for colon cancer have indicated a 50% reduction in mortality, nor have trials for screening for any other type of cancer. 
Then there are hip fractures whose rates have been dropping by 15 to 20 percent a decade over the past 30 years. Although the change occurred when there were drugs to slow bone loss in people with osteoporosis, too few patients took them to account for the effect. For instance, fewer than 10% of women over 65 take the drugs. Dementia rates also have been plunging. The latest data finds a 20% decline in dementia incidence per decade starting in 1977. Heart disease death rate has been falling for so long, more than half a century, that it's no longer big news. While heart disease is still the leading cause of death in the United States, deaths have fallen 60% from their peak. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folston, attorney with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.